0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, Associate Professor of Geography and Environmental Studies at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Jared D. Margulis, author of The Cactus Hunters, Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade, published in 2023 by University of Minnesota Press. Dr. Margulis, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you very much for having me.
0: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. So um, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Geography and the Environment at the University of Alabama. I've been here since um, 2019. Before that, I was a postdoctoral research fellow uh, in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Sheffield. And that's the position I had, uh, where I was conducting most of the preliminary or not conducting most of the primary research for this book. and before that, I did my I earned my PhD at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, or UMBC, uh, in Baltimore,
0: Maryland, in in 2017. Okay, so this is a book a lot about cactus collectors. So let's get into this by learning a bit about who are these people that collect cactuses, what motivates them, and how do they obtain their cactuses, and why are they willing to turn to illicit or illegal means to get some of them?
1: Yeah. So, and I guess. To, you know you asked the question before also about how i got into this so i i suppose i can back up a little bit and to say that and i write about this in the in the preface of the book so i'm not really giving anything away but um when i, I my phd work was actually on on human wildlife conflict in south india um which is a far cry from studying the world of illicit plant trade but also ornamental plant collectors and the kind of passions and desires that drive them so the, the the transition there was that the the project I was on as a postdoc in the UK was about the relationships between biodiversity conservation and security, um, and that was that was being studied through the illegal wildlife trade. And this was on a big European Research Council funded project led by Professor Rosaline Duffy. Um, and I I I I got the one of the two postdoctoral positions. And I said that I was with a proposal to, to go back to do my to do to do more work in India on the illegal tiger bone trade, actually. Um, but the more I thought as I after I, I, I got the position, but the more I thought about it as I prepared to move to the UK from Baltimore, but um, start, thought about how I was going to do this work and go back to India to do this project um, where I had been for a long time. I, I really ran into some stumbling blocks in terms of the ethics and methodologies that I might employ in studying something like the illegal tiger bone trade from India to China. And part of the reason for that was I had encountered it a little bit in my my previous research on human wildlife conflicts in South India. I, I was working around this sort of area, uh, protected area network um, at the borderlands of Karnataka, Tamil Nadu and Kerala. Um, But this is like a a, a pretty serious uh, and very illegal kind of wildlife trade. Um, I became concerned how I was going to ensure the anonymity and protection of any research participants um, or research assistants, uh, but also my own safety and security in studying this kind of illegal trade. And, And one of the things methodologically that I was trying to get away from, which I'd spent a lot of time doing in my PhD work, was spending a lot of time doing interviews with like say bureaucrats and forest department officials um and i really was interested in how i could kind of methodologically advance how do we literally study in a material sense these illegal wildlife trades and through attention to the you know to use a, a phrase um from geographer rosemary collard uh these kind of lively commodities or form of lively capital um And I realized that was going to be really hard to do with something that was as kind of securitized and scrutinized as the illegal tiger bone trade. So I was sort of looking for a different project. And I came across an article about saguaro rustling or saguaro poaching in the US Southwest in Arizona. And I was really struck by this interesting form of what I saw as a kind of illegal wildlife trade, um, if we understand wildlife more broadly as not just animal life, but plant life as well. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized that there were these decades of articles about illegal cactus and succulent trades internationally. Um, and yet, as I turned to the scholarly literature on this, I found really very, very little uh, um, that had been done on these kinds of trades. There was some research in the kind of conservation biology field. Um, but this was more kind of like natural scientists writing about this as a problem driving species extinction, but no one kind of really doing very, there was very little on the sort of serious kind of more critical and social science efforts to study these trades. So that's a, that's a long winded kind of background into how I actually got into this topic, but very quickly I fell into it and became, as readers will find if they read the book uh, pretty quickly obsessed um, with the subject and, and arguably as obsessed as my,
0: Kind of collector interlocutors yeah i think there's definitely that kind of personal dimension to the book where we learn a lot about you along with learning about the cactus collectors and um you know the cactuses themselves um so can you say a bit more about the the collectors that you you met and sort of what they were doing how they were assembling their collections yeah um
1: thank you uh, (laughs) to actually answer the question you asked um yeah so i the way i my I, i got it the way i followed this work was i you know i was based in the uk and so i quickly joined the sheffield branch of the british cactus and succulent society and um, I, I wanted to really take seriously understanding who these collectors were or what kinds of people they were. And I want to say from the outset that, you know, the vast majority of the people I spent time with in researching this book are not people engaged in illegal or, or illicit wildlife trades. Um, you know, a lot of these are just really passionate collectors of ornamental plants who really, really care about these plants deeply and, and don't kind of allow that passion to end up on the wrong side of the law or social norms. But some do. Um And we can talk about kind of how that happens, but you know, a lot of my time was spent in, uh, this was also a surprise in the research, but a lot of my time was spent with kind of, um, uh, with men and especially kind of uh, middle-aged men who um, had slowly over time amassed these really incredible collections of these really, you know, amazing plants from all over the world. Um, So I spent a lot of time with these collectors um, in their greenhouses, And this was mostly work in Europe and also in the U.S. And one of the reasons I chose to focus on collectors in Europe and the U.S. especially was so much research on illegal wildlife trades tends to overemphasize and focus consumption of illegal wildlife trade products, um, especially right now in East Asia, with a lack of attention to the fact that global north countries like the United States um, and a lot of European countries or the U.K., have long been the largest, some of the largest consumers of, of illegal wildlife trade products. And so I wanted to kind of draw geographically my attention to these areas that I've seen as sort of under-researched overall. Um, but, but what I quickly came to see was that there was very serious forms of desire at work um, in these greenhouses, with especially these men. And of course, it's not only men, but but there was a degree in which kind of a study of masculinities emerged in this project. Um, and so I I hope that that if folks read the book they they feel like I've I've treated these folks with respect and sensitively. Um, a lot of these people quickly became dear friends of mine and colleagues. Um, but I wanted to say seriously, how do these relationships emerge between um, people and and the plants that they care for, um, and what does that teach us also about kind of human plant relationships more broadly and and the desire that underpins them, and so. In saying desire now a few times, that's also to signal that where my past work had really focused a lot on issues of political economy and political ecology and environmental change, here I saw something beyond money and economy kind of at work in shaping species' futures and endings. And and so this is kind of what led me down the path towards desire and, and and also engagement with psychoanalysis.
0: Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about how that desire manifests for these collectors?
1: Sure. So, you know, it, it, it can look like a lot of different things. And and one of the claims I make in the book is we don't need to be too overdetermined in in um in enunciating a specific cause of desire. Um it can, you know, our interpretations can be multiple in many. Um but, you know, um, one of the things that was really as a good example, I think, was seeing how the lives of, of plants don't just um, include themselves, but they can include the lives of the collector, um, but also the lives of, of other collectors past. So a common thing you see, and this is this maps really well onto the actual physiological traits of these plants, you know, a lot of cacti are really slow growing and long living plants. Some Some cacti live as long as people do or even longer. And so one of the things that you often see is cacti being passed from one sort of collector greenhouse to another as the collectors themselves pass pass away. Um, and so these cacti that can become really prized kind of uh, possessions, don't just sort of um, become important objects of desire for collectors, because of the plant themselves, but also the memories. For instance, of others past or uh, loved ones, um, uh, whether it's a you know a grandmother or uh, you know a father figure, um, but another collector in the hobby. Um, they can sort of uh sort of amass these collective human memories onto them. And in these ways, these plants become really kind of, you know, more than human kind of social actors that uh, that can hold a lot of power and meaning for for these collectors. That's just one of, of kind of many ways that I, I saw desires kind of being mapped, mapped out in the
0: greenhouse. Yeah, I found that a really interesting aspect of the book, the way that the the cactuses would sometimes kind of embody these social relationships that collectors had among themselves and with people who had like gotten them into this as a hobby and so forth
1: yeah i think that was one of the real you know a lot of this this research was really joyful to to pursue and it was really different in that way than some of the research i've done in the past which was often quite fraught and and challenging and for instance dealing with like you know real serious issues of of people's livelihoods being impacted by say um you know, their cattle being, you know, attacked or eaten by leopards or tigers. And there was something really different for me in doing research in which, you know, I could try to really closely and carefully pay attention to how, how a collector even moves through the greenhouse and how they pay attention to their plants and the stories that they could share. As we kind of moved through. So for any kind of, you know, geographers listening, they're probably thinking about say like embodiment practices tied to say like walking interviews and things like that, or, or, you know, elicitation techniques. And there was a lot of that kind of at play and, you know, you would pass a plant in the greenhouse and they would remember a story about how they got that plant and from whom, um, and again, that was an opportunity for me to also to sit with and think about what it means to talk about care as well, which is their kind of theme that emerges in the book is um, how 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 humans care for non-human, non-human others.
0: Yeah. So that's actually a good segue because in these cactus collectors care for their plants, but then they run up against other groups of people that also care about cactuses, but in different ways and end up kind of odds for example with like conservationists and environmentalists that have different ideas about what it would mean to care for cactuses especially species that are you know threatened or endangered yeah so one of the arguments i make in the book is
1: that it the the way to think through this analytic of relationships between the collectors who are oftentimes sort of vilified and seen as the kind of conservation problem actors by professional botanists and conservationists and policymakers, um, I I make this argument that there's a much more of a kind of dialectic here in terms of how, what really motivates and sends both of these kinds of groups of actors out into the world in relationship with these plants is sort of uh, forms of, of desirous position that manifests in these different forms, right? So we can think of, for instance, the kind of class fortress conservation, preservationist desires of conservationists to remove humans from the landscape as a, as a mode of uh, possessive desire. In the same way, I think we see these possessive desires at play with collectors who go out to the world um, desiring to kind of bring back these plants from from, from their habitats and natural environments into, into the greenhouse as a mode of protection um in its in its own way, even if it you know sort of is very fraught or misguided. Um and so one of the things I hope people take away from this book, especially for folks who are more interested in kind of conservation policy, is a claim that I make that I think there's a robust opportunity here to develop more meaningful collaborations between these kinds of groups of people.
0: Um,
1: cactus collectors and still collectors, for instance, are much like sort of amateur ornithology or birder community. The kinds of people who have the time and passion and drive to go out and check in on these populations and, assess, for instance, um, uh, how well populations are out doing in the world in a way that professional conservationists really don't have the time or resources for. Um, so I see a real opportunity here, potentially, leveraging a lot of that kind of citizens, so to speak, about how these populations are changing on a kind of basis for kind of conservation science work. So I am hopeful that, you know, maybe we can try to kind of push together opportunities because right now I would say that's a lot of missed opportunities. There have been some, um, efforts to try to improve this, but like, like, for instance, the way that the sort of, uh, birder community has been leveraged by say the scientific ornithology community to produce scientific knowledge. But I would say that's really happening right now within the kind of collector, um, the collector community.
0: Yeah. So then another thing you had mentioned was that you were really focusing on collectors located in europe and uh, the united states but then a lot of the cactuses that they're collecting are species that are from the global south so a lot of uh, yeah you know like mexico chile these kind of places are where some of these cactuses are coming from so how how does cactus collecting sort of interface with those global north south relationships
1: yeah, you know, so I mean, the, I had to do, you know, also think about this project within the sort of longer durée of, of colonialism and imperialism, especially because we know, you know, there's really good scholarship out there on sort of the role of botany, um, but also natural history collections, um, and taxonomy as, you know, part and parcel to various imperial and colonial projects. Um We can think about an institution like Q as a good example of that in the UK, right? These important spaces of scientific knowledge production that also served to um, transfer um, both material goods, like say rubber trees, um, from various parts of the empire to others for their economic benefit. Um, uh, but, but, But so natural history hobbies as a collection, of course, date back a long time, but especially within the sort of European tradition very much part and parcel to the sort of desire to explore the world, especially thinking about Britain and its desire to kind of map out the world, um, and know the world better. Um, and, and so, yeah, I did see some of that still of course at play, right? So, um, the way that collectors would want to go out on what they called cacto explorations. Um, and in, in part of the desire there was to to emplace themselves in these landscapes and in doing so try to m- kind of leave their own mark, on these histories so a lot of collectors also after going on these kinds of trips will go around and do talks for instance at collector uh within the sort of collector concert the sort of uh cactus and succulent societies like they have individual chapters and they'll have talks for instance about different you know trips my trip to peru or um you know uh, a talk on all the marvelous mesms of south south africa um these kinds of you know sort of photo slideshow talks and And so this was also a way of them kind of preserving their own legacy um, through these plants in these kinds of landscapes. And so that kind of fantasy of exploration and the imagined desire to discover you know, that oftentimes seemed to ignore, you know, the kind of long histories of both settler colonialism and imperialism, but also the fact that, you know, these are lived in places with indigenous populations and, and they, you know, local inhabitants was something that definitely came up um, in my research.
0: And I thought one of the most interesting bits of the book was that you you give us a really good sense of what it's like to go on some of these cacto explorations that you uh you know went along and you kind of describe what it's like being on on this so i was wondering if you could talk a bit about your approach to writing the book and uh you know how you how you frame these things and how you kind of put yourself into the the story and kind of the the choices that you make there as opposed to you know the way uh a book might be written differently about this same topic that might be a little more, you know, maybe a little more distanced or technical, I guess.
1: Yeah, you know,
0: this book was full of
1: surprises. I There's really very little in this book that I set out to do. Um, This is my first book. Um, I did not intend in writing this book to write myself into the book um, to the extent that I ended up in the book Um, and, you know, as the book ages and I have more distance from it, you know, time will tell, I guess, whether or not that was the right choice or not. Um, I I chose to write this as a book um, rather than just a series of journal articles, Um, you know, and and just that's all to say geography is a bit of a funny discipline in the sense that you can have a very successful career, you know, never writing a book in academia. You could write, you know, just articles your whole career and that would be fine for a lot of people. so it was a choice to write a book. And the reason I chose to write it this up as a book was everything felt so interconnected and entwined that it was really hard for me to imagine kind of parceling out all of this different kinds of information and data and, and, and stories um, into just sort of really discrete articles about different topics because it all felt so enmeshed. And so that for me felt like a good reason to write a book. Um, but when I sat down to finally start writing the book, um, I felt I I found that so many of my personal experiences in doing the work and doing kind of participant observation and and ethnography within these communities felt like the most compelling stories that really I thought served to narrate not only um, sensitively, you know, what are these collectors about and what motivates them, especially because I was trying to really structure the book through thinking with desire. but, but you know in, in addition to, I think, being some of the more compelling stories, I think it helps to understand and situate myself as the researcher in relationship to these folks, right? As a non-neutral, non-objective you know, participant. Um, but I think in doing that, you also see how these desires kind of start to shape my own relationships, both with these men, as it was often men, but with also with these plants. Um, Certainly there would have been a different way to write this book from a much more kind of distance perspective. Um, But every time I sat down to write, this was the stuff that kind of, kind of seemed to creep out of my fingers. Um, And it surprised me a a great deal. Um, And I think, you know, it'll be up to readers,
0: I guess, to decide whether or not that was, that was the right choice or not. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I found doing all these interviews that a lot of authors seem to have that experience of the book kind of tells you how it wants to be written. Sometimes. Um, it did feel a little bit strange.
1: Like it was, uh, yeah. Like I was a medium, <laughs> like through which okay. the book was emergent. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, like I, I, go back and I, I do think I, st- I I, I do think I stand by this choice because especially by, by trying to pay attention to some of these more psychoanalytic dimensions of the book. So thinking about things like anxiety, the drives, um, lack, desire like these are very um you know this is about where the unconscious um where the rubber meets the road of where the unconscious presents itself in relationship to the environment and and i think it it it's well suited therefore to also thinking about how we feel these how we feel these kinds of of phenomenon and emotions ourselves and i and hopefully that in a way that um readers don't feel like it becomes a navel gazing exercise, but it is instead a way to kind of be able to relate it back to own, the own experiences that, that, you know, they themselves may have had in a different context.
0: So then, kind of changing gears a little bit, uh, I was really interested in the interaction between uh, botanists who are making decisions about how to classify certain varieties of cactus as, you know, a species or a subspecies or whatever, and collectors' decisions about what to collect. So, could you talk a little bit about that connection there between like the the botany and the the collectors' activities?
1: Yeah, the you know the political power of taxonomy looms large over this hobby, um, it, and I guess I should say, you know, it, 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 what it, in a, in the final draft stage of the book, it suddenly occurred to me that um, this was like right before it would was going to basically go to press. That i never actually defined what a cactus was or what a succulent was and that was <laughs> this is the problem of getting too into the weeds of a project um but you know it is worth noting right that um so cacti you know uh, and this this ties to the question about taxonomy so cacti are a family a taxonomic family within the sort of classic linnaean uh you know system of uh you know you know family genus species so Cactaceae is a family of about 1500 or so 1200 to 1500 species of cacti. This continues to evolve and change um both as species get shuffled around by botanists but also as as you know quote unquote new species are discovered by by scientists um and uh, there's a variety of genera, and then there's this many species. Suc- there's no family of succulents. Succulents is a physiological trait that occurs across the tree of life. There are probably around 12,000 species of plants, maybe more in the world, that display forms of succulents. And you know that ranges from holding water in the tissue of you know pinchable, cute, succulent leaves, like the succulents most of us think of, but also in deep tap roots. Um, succulents just tells us that a plant has evolved this trait where... In the absence of water in the soil they're able to maintain metabolic processes and continue to to metabolize um uh and, and you know and, and and engage in say things like photosynthesis and, and sugar uh production um in the absence of water because it, they store water in their leaves so that's just i feel like that's worth mentioning um but but yeah so focusing for instance on the cactus family um how we identify species matters a great deal uh, both not only to science but collectors, because oftentimes, so one of the things that defines a collection is some kind of order, however arbitrary it is, okay? And so for collectors that can look like lots of different things, it could mean that they only collect plants from one geographic region like Chile or Peru, or you know uh, you know, a particular desert or arid region. It could be that they're only interested in one particular genera of cacti. It could be that they're a collector who wants, like a stamp collector who wants one of everything, you know, Um, or it could be aesthetic and they like pink cacti with pink flowers and they don't care where they they come from and they don't care what their shape is. You know, so it's totally arbitrary what defines a collection. The only thing that really makes it a collection is that whether or not the collector is aware of it, there's some way in which this set of objects is becoming ordered in relationship to one another based on the preferences of the collector. A lot of collectors, I would argue, aren't even necessarily aware of what those ordering practices are. Sometimes collections have sub-collections as well. Um, but so when botanists or taxonomists decide, actually, you know, this one species of Mammillaria cactus is actually not a different species than this other one, and they combine the two, you know, if that uh, happens to be a species of cactus that a collector is really passionate about and suddenly it doesn't exist in the world, so to speak, as a species, that can really tick off collectors. Um, so you'll often hear collectors talking about this frustration of botanists moving plants around that sort of tree of life and how it messes up their collection. You know, they'll say, well, this used to, you know, this... You know, this used to be an Ubomania, but now it's being, you know, uh classified as this genus, or you know, it was it was a Dudlia, but now or it was an Echeveria, and now it's a Dudlia, and I don't know what to call it. Um so they'll gripe about this a lot. One of the reasons this is happening more and more, um, or has been happening for a while now, is a shift from kind of a morphological approach to knowing species. So, like what do they look like? Um, you know what is the color of the flower? How many you know pistils or stamens does it have? Um, what is the the sort of morphological shape of this plant? How tall does it grow? To a molecular genetic approach to knowing species, so how genetically similar are two different kind of species? And this has really muddied the waters of how it is that we come to know species. So this is a question of epistemology: How do we know the species? But in doing so, it changes how. How species come to, to matter to collectors. And I write about that in relationship to my own encounters with these plants. You know, and if I had known them differently, would they have been, you know, would I have had the emotional experiences, for instance, of encountering them in the wild, so to speak, for the first time, if they had they weren't their own unique super rare species, but were binned in with a much larger, you know, species of cacti.
0: Yeah. So now I want to give you a chance to kind of talk theory a bit because you've mentioned in some of your answers that with this book, you're kind of bringing together on the one hand, psychoanalysis, then on the other hand, political ecology. So can you talk about sort of how you combine those and what are the benefits to connecting those two bodies of theory?
1: Yeah, this was a a choice, (laughs) like all choices. Um, But, you know, I think I say in the introduction, you know, this was anything of a project. This wasn't a kind of hammer searching for a nail kind of project. Um, I really wanted to take seriously, uh, you know, an inductive, I teaching a qualitative methods class right now, so I'm thinking a lot about, you know, issues of how to talk about inductive versus deductive research and the epistemologies that underpin our work. But, um, you know, I wanted to go out and try to really inductively approach and understand these phenomenon as I encountered them and allow the empirics to lead me towards the theories that would help me to better understand these phenomenon. And in doing that, what I encountered was that the kind of traditional approaches of political ecology, which is as a discipline interested in issues of, say, power in relationship to the environment and environmental change, issues of access or inaccess to natural resources, um, how political contestations manifest through, um, uh, the, through the environment and human environment relations, Oftentimes that focuses on issues of, say, like uh, Marxian political economy. Most of my work in the past has. It just wasn't helping me better really understand this because this wasn't an illegal wildlife trade that could just be made sense of based on winners and losers over access to a robust and lucrative illicit economy. Okay, This wasn't the drug trade. So I was kind of searching for theoretical and analytical frameworks that could help me better understand what was going on and what I was observing. Um, and 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 this is what eventually led me towards psychoanalysis. I did not at the time of writing this book have a background in psychoanalytic geographies, which is a subdiscipline, a really robust subdiscipline of geography. Um, so it's not like I was, uh, you know, forging a, you know, a a new path here, um, in terms of thinking about how psychoanalysis can, can be instructive in terms of thinking about human environment relations. There's a lot of phenomenal work that's been around for several decades in this, in this vein, although this work was happening in an interesting moment. So kind of within the popular discourse, right? Like now you have the New Yorker writing about the, the return of Freud, for instance, and things like this. So, um, I, I kind of, you know that was sort of just happenstance that it seems like there's a lot more attention being paid to Freud and Lacan right now in more popular discourse, but um I, yeah I eventually settled on a lot of these kind of Freudian Lacanian frameworks for thinking about desire, simply because as I dove into that set of readings and body of work and saw how geographers were were leveraging this theory to make sense of human environment relations, I found it held enormous explanatory power for understanding. What was moving collectors out into the world and desiring of these plants, and how that was shaping species futures? And um, I can't really think of a better reason to turn to a particular body of theory than that. Um, was that it helped me make sense of what I was observing as a as a geographer studying these phenomena. Um, you know it was very uh it meant i had to do a lot of reading um it's why the book took a while in part to write it was a lot of work so as i was also you know out doing interviews and participant observation um in in reading up in learning my botany <laughs> at the same time i was also reading a lot of, of freud and lacan and in in thinkers um who 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 who, who have done a lot of reading and thinking with them as well, um, in relationship to environmental geography.
0: All right. So as we're moving towards the end of our time here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a, uh, that's a tough, I
1: mean, yeah. I, I I say this at the beginning of my acknowledgement section, I always sort of thought it was a little obnoxious how long acknowledgement sections in academic books could be. Like It was just sort of like name-dropping for people. I still think some people do that, but um, my acknowledgement section is quite long because this book was enormously helped along by a number of different kinds of people. I mean, the first biggest shout-out I'd have to give is to Rosaline Duffy, who hired me and gave me the research funding to do this work and approach it in the kind of global follow-the-species kind of way that I did. Um, so there's a political economy to research production, right? And and this work was funded by the ERC. And without that funding, this book wouldn't exist. Um, But in addition to Rosaline, I definitely would want to thank, you know, there's a lot of people who've been theorizing with Lacan and psychoanalytic geographies for a long time. Um, Who've really welcomed me into that space as a uh, as a newbie, and and Paul Kingsbury is someone who really stands out um, as a, a really important person. He read an earlier draft of the book um, and provided a lot of feedback. But importantly, there was this really phenomenal session um, run by Paul Robbins from Wisconsin, political ecologist um, Sarah Moore, also a political ecologist who does a lot of who's written a lot with Lacan. Um, from University of Wisconsin, and the late Karen Bacher, um, who sadly passed away um, this past year, on kind of psychoanalytic political ecologies at one of the meetings of the American Associations of Geographers a a number of years ago. And this was the first time I presented a paper in which I was starting to draw from some of these Lacanian um, perspectives in, in signaling that I understood that there was something I was missing in my analysis, and I suspected that psychoanalysis might be able to help me. And Paul was this really brilliant discussion in that section, and that in that session, and it really convinced me
0: that this was a path I should follow. Um, so I'm really, really grateful to him for that. Okay, and so that brings us to our traditional final question on the New Books Network, which is, what are you working on next? You know, for right now, um, I, I, I'm I'm
1: finding myself in this weird illicit plant trade space because very few social scientists have been in it, and so I'm very happy that it has meant that. Um, I'm doing a lot of work on the kind of more like conservation science policy translation side of things. So I've been doing some work with IUCN related to issues of illegal plant trade. Um, but I also have a new project. Um, I, I, I received a national geographic Explorer grant this past year. And so I'm starting a new project. Um, well, I've been working on it for a few years now, but I have, a, some more funding now to keep doing work on illegal and illicit Venus flytrap trade from, uh, the Carolinas in the U S and, um, doing some work on issues of, of illicit succulent trade in South Africa with some colleagues, both in South Africa and Korea, to kind of try to think about, you know, more pragmatically, like what can be done to kind of both uh, reverse these impacts on illegal harvesting, but also in a way that's attentive to the needs of communities uh, in these areas where these plants grow. So um, kind of sticking in some ways just sort of extending the project and um, in, in, um, in the meantime, we've got some other projects kind of cooking in the back burner, but they're too they're
0: pretty early in their early stages. All right, yeah, that sounds really interesting. And if it results in another book, we'd love to have you back. Okay, thank you so much. These were great questions too all right thank you so much for coming on the show thanks a lot it was a pleasure yeah this has been a conversation with jared d margulis author of the cactus hunters desire and extinction in the illicit succulent trade published in 2023 by university of minnesota press